a life sustainably lived. I'm Robert Colangelo, and this is Green Sense, where we bring you eco-innovations that are changing your world. Mike Keene is the principal at Thrive Michiana, a sustainability and innovation consulting and development company. But more than that, he has dedicated his career to principles of sustainability, and he's a longtime friend. We'll tell his story on how he's transitioned from a professor to a builder of accessible housing and his efforts to transform the current housing system that has priced many out of owning a home. Mike, welcome back to GreenSense. Glad to be here, Robert. Well, there's a lot of greenwashing out there, Mike. Uh, people make false claims to profit in this uh, area, but you're one of the most sincere and dedicated people in the field of sustainability that I've met. Uh, so give us a brief thumbnail on your background and what led you to be a professor of sustainability. Uh, well, that was, that was kind of an accident. I got my PhD in sociology at the University of Notre Dame, focused on uh, social theory and the history of sociology. And I suspect that me and about 150 other people around the world uh, thought that's important and enjoyed it. Um, but in 2006, 2008, I was starting to uh, think a little bit more about the relationship between environment and society, and then began to include the uh, uh, addition of economy uh, and ran across something called the triple bottom line uh, in the uh, early 90s, uh, mid 90s, uh, and began to see that was something called this emerging idea called sustainability. Uh, and uh, in 2008, uh, I went to the university and said, I really like to move from teaching sociology to developing a new program around this emerging field called sustainability studies. Um, and it's kind of how I got started. <laughs> well, I love uh, accidental success stories. And I don't think you've ever left sociology. You've just uh, added that piece to the three-legged stool of sustainability. Uh, and the social one, part, you're right. Right. One of my uh, proudest accomplishments in the field of sustainability was working with you. And we developed a course for Indiana University where you taught in South Bend. And the course uh, we developed was called The Art of Sustainability. So if you could tell our listeners about the course and share your impressions of how the students liked it and, and, and how it has evolved. Well, Robert, you were one of the first persons that we started a relationship with through the Center for Sustainable Future. And we began to teach the new sustainability studies uh, program we put together. Um, and when you came to us with the idea of, of adding art uh, and creating a mural uh, that would sort of show the history of sustainable uh, uh, agriculture in the United States and what it might look going forward, um, that was just a perfect mix because, you know, you and I both sort of had done the social science and the science, but to bring the humanities to the, to the table was, 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 a, was a great idea. The students loved that course. Quite frankly, I think that course got better, better uh, student uh, evaluations than virtually anything else we did. And it's because of the hands-on nature of it. They were actually able to be creative and create something and see a result from their work. Well, the artist who helped the, the uh, students paint the mural was also a big inspiration. Talk a little bit about him. Well, David Blodgett was uh, a local muralist, and we were lucky to have found him. And the, the, the faculty member who was actually teaching, of course, uh, um, Edwin, um, those two worked together really, really well. Um, uh, when we taught the second time as well. And David had experience uh, doing local mural uh, art and bringing other people into it. And so the students and, and Edwin really sort of did a lot of work and finding out kind of the history in the background. Uh, and then uh, David helped them think about how they might put some of those images together and, and 
and help teach them how to uh, put it on a put it on a big canvas and and fill it in with some beautiful colors. And talk about big. How big was it? Oh my gosh, was it? <laughs> what, what weren't we? Um, four eight by thirty six. I mean, it was it was uh, it was huge. It was quite a big mural, and I got so many positive accolades from the students. Uh, they were very happy, and they really enjoyed that co course. Uh, uh, you know, from from all the instructors. The theme was to take a look at agriculture and how water, transportation, and energy were inextricably linked and how it changed uh, through the history of agriculture. A lot of fun. And uh, where is the course now? Well, I mean, first of all, just let me say that the most exciting thing was that we did it one year for your farm and Portage, uh, but then the next year we did it again. Uh, and that mural was sent to China. So that was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, um, hung in a Chinese uh, vertical farm. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, last year, another, another artist stepped up. Uh, but this guy is a guy who sort of helps reuse uh, and repurpose existing materials. And so he brought together a group of students. And what they did is they designed a couple of um, benches, but that are also like sculpture that go out in front of a, a, a church kingdom cathedral, uh, kingdom Christ cathedral and our near Northwest neighborhood um, organization offices. Uh, and so uh, those two um, kind of sculptured benches sort of bind together these two different uh, not-for-profits uh, that serve the neighborhood that I work in. Well, that's fantastic. So let's talk a little bit about your transition. Uh, you were a professor at University of Indiana in South Bend, teaching sustainability. Uh, and now you're a property developer if I could use that term in a general sense, uh, what's the biggest challenge you found going from academia to the private sector development world? Uh, you know, I think the biggest challenge is, is recognizing that all of a sudden we're working with billable hours uh, or billable time. Uh, and, you know, you have to have deliveries, uh, deliverables at a, at a point certain, um, and you have to do it in a way that meets within a budget. At the university, you know, we had a gross budget. I had to run a faculty department and make sure that I didn't go over my copying budget, you know, and, and the salaries were preset. Um, but here, you know, as the person who's responsible for the development project, I'm just got to try to figure out up front, you know, what's all that going to cost and then what's going to be the income and are we going to be able to get the income, the rents, or uh, if we sell the property, the sales, that will actually justify and allow us to do, uh, do the project. So I guess to summarize that, it's the speed of activity, it's the accountability, and uh, it's uh, maybe the market reality. You're, you're uh, tied to time and money. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's probably market reality as much as anything else, right? Because uh, uh, that's just, that's just uh, there. <laughs> it's the hammer, so to say. Well, you jumped into the fire, and you also jumped in into a very transformative time in the world. You know, we have COVID, now the Ukrainian war, how have you been able to adapt to all the challenges that that's created? Well, one of the things that I think uh, is we approach it from what's called a uh, incremental development approach or a small scale development approach. So the idea is, is that you sort of choose an area uh, that you're familiar with uh, and we call it our farm. We, 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 we actually say that we're farming, not developing because we don't develop a project and move on. But just like an organic farmer, each year we try to make the soil a little richer. We try to make the project, the neighborhood, um, a, a little bit better for everybody. Um, and even though we might start out with appraisal gaps and not be able to sell the properties where we can buy them, uh, we can start out at a process where we can understand what can we can afford to uh, uh, spend and what the market will bear. And we can start whatever we need to be, begin to build that ecosystem. In some cases, for some of our members, that's literally been with tents. For us, it was with a renovation of an old 
uh, uh, flower shop that had been turned into kind of a junk shop. That's pretty impressive. So let's get into the uh, meat of the issue and talk about what the challenge is out there is that uh, housing in many cities has become unaffordable. Uh, this is something that everybody has recognized, especially entry-level homes in, in very hot markets like Denver or Austin or Nashville. Uh, and to answer that question is quite complex, but part of that answer is that supply and demand have been impacted by investment companies who are buying up large amounts of entry-level homes at high prices, and they're turning them into rental properties jacking up rental rates and taking the supply of homes for sale out of the market. And before, uh, people below the poverty line were the ones that were unable to buy homes. But now that problem is even much more complex because even professionals or two-income houses households can't afford to buy a home or even rent in some major cities. So your solution is to build sustainable, accessible housing Explain what that means and how that can help solve the problem. Well, again, what we try to do is we try to use the same approach, uh, the incremental approach, and think about what can we build. I mean, the challenge of housing right now is that, you know, whoever you're trying to build it with, if you're building quality housing, it's going to cost you $220 a square foot. That's just reality that's out there. And so far, I haven't seen anybody who's been able to deliver quality um, for, for, for less than that. You know, you can do it if you want a tent, but that's not quality. So how do we create accessible um, uh, housing? What we try to do is number one, we try to sort of redefine what we think by affordability. And we begin to think about it as affordability uh, through a life cycle analysis. So what's the upfront cost, but then also what's your maintenance cost in your operations? Operations is largely your energy and your water use um, and, and maybe some day-to-day -day kind of maintenance. And then maintenance of course, is your more long-term maintenance. And with most houses, when you, when you buy a house with a 30 year mortgage, you also bought yourself a 12 or $15,000 roof job, uh, a window replacement, if you're using vinyl re replacement, and you got some lousy looking vinyl siding there, you know, within 20 years before you paid off that mortgage. So we try to do things in such a way that we meet market rate, we can build for the same rate as standard construction um, by using a slightly different method, but we end up giving folks for that price, um, uh, a, a, a wooden siding uh, that uh, uh, has got a 25 year no fade guarantee on it, metal roofs uh, and quality windows. Well, you describe a home in more detail, like the square footage, what are some of the other amenities in it? How does yeah, it square differ? footage can be anything from uh, uh, our smallest so far has been 200 and uh, 400 square feet, but we can go up to, I like to say, if one of the gates uh, doesn't get the house, we can build them a $60,000 house for the other one. Uh, that would be uh, uh, energy neutral uh, and, and uh, last 100 years. Um, so uh, basically the secret is we use what's called a post frame approach to building, which is the way they used to build barns. That allows us to have larger wall cavity uh, put some more insulation in. And one of the things we like to say that makes a difference in our, our building envelope system is nothing because we're able to put uh, a two inch gap on either side of the six inches of insulation we've got in our wall pocket. And that's kind of like what happens with your cup that you keep your coffee warm in the morning or a space suit, right? It's got nothing but air that's acting as the insulation. Well, that's pretty impressive uh, because people need a place to live and getting equity it's a big part of the American dream, but it's also part of how a lot of people are going to retire. Um, talk a little bit more about the sustainability of these homes. Well, the sustainability from, from an ecological perspective, these things are uber sustainable because 
uh, almost everything we put in the house, except for a little bit of insulation board, uh, is can be reused or recycled. Um, as I said, there's no major maintenance. You know, the roof has got a 40 to 60 year guarantee on it. Uh, and we're putting solar, uh, gluing it to the metal roof. And so that's also bringing down your energy. But our building system alone, our envelope reduces energy uh, requirements by 50 to 70%. So the uh, ecological and to the extent that, you know, uh, making it an economical house to be able to maintain and to uh, operate, you know, we've sort, of, we've sort of solved that component. The challenge still is the upfront price um, and then doing that in such a way that we can actually make it accessible to more than just say the top 10, 15 or 20% of the income profile. Um, one of the big challenges for building is finding land that's affordable. Is that a challenge uh, for you? Well, see, what's interesting is you identified one part of the problem of housing. Um, and that is if we're in hot housing areas, trying to find land and being able to build something that people can uh, access and afford is very problematic. But there's another side to that. And that's working in these, uh, what we sometimes refer to as missing middle neighborhoods in uh, uh, housing markets that haven't got hard. Quite frankly, largely uh, uh, neighborhoods that are often uh, uh, predominantly minority neighborhoods now that were probably uh, uh, um, deteriorated through a process of uh, systematic redlining uh, that uh, banks, realtors, and local officials participate in, you know, through the 1950s, even given laws against this. And so that's kind of where I'm at. So my problem is not land. Uh, we've got a thousand vacant lots here, uh, that, you know, in South Bend here uh, from uh, uh, our previous mayor, uh, Pete Buttigieg, actually about 660. They rehabbed uh, about 350, 60 of those houses. Um, so for us, land is not the issue. The issue is we still are you know, trying to you know, crack that nut of $200 a square foot, $220 a square foot. So if I build a thousand square feet, that's $220,000. Um, and that is going to be uh, more than three times the median income of the average family uh, in, South, in South Bend. Um, so we have to begin to think about other things. First of all, we have to make sure we right size our houses. We can no longer continue to build uh, the 1,500, 1,600 square foot a uh, three bedroom, one and a half, two bath meant for a family of five. Um, but in addition to that, we need to rethink how we think about ownership. Uh, for example, it turns out that if we take a, a, a household that is um, under median income, uh, so they're, they're struggling, what we can do is if we build them a duplex, we make them not only a homeowner, but a landlord. They can begin then to la live in part of their house rent out part of it. And then the great thing about that is that other element that they are renting out often is going to be rented out at a amount that can be, be um, afforded by somebody who is you know, only at median income, but this is unsubsidized uh, if, if, if we work it right. So one of the challenges I had in my brownfield days is we would go into blighted areas, buy contaminated property that nobody wanted to touch and, and raise investment money to improve an area and then all of a sudden, the value of that area would change. And over time, it became unaffordable. If you're successful and you build many homes, how do you balance that uh, success with keeping prices affordable? Well, I mean, one of the challenges we have is we don't want stabilization to be a situation where you only have uh, affordable housing if it's in a neighborhood that's deteriorated. Uh, on the other hand, like you say, if you do stabilize your neighborhood, you often can't stop it at some point. So for us, it's by getting out in front of the game, 
by making sure one's aware of the possibility that's going to happen. And then collaborating. For example, we collaborate with the local uh, Community Development Corporation, our near Northwest neighborhood organization. And we recently sold them two of our top lots so that they could build a duplex and a fourplex on those. In those two properties, they will have four, six units out of the 36 we'll be building out over the next uh, five years that will be uh, income qualified and therefore remain accessible you know, forever. The challenge with those, however, is now the, the, those families aren't getting home ownership. So one of the things we're trying to get people to do is develop a renter equity program so that we can sort of have a situation where you don't have to either rent or own, uh, but maybe we get a, a middle process going where you can rent in a place where you get some renter equity. So you build up enough equity that when you actually go to buy, you have enough of an income to actually get that, 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 that property you're owning jump-started uh, and, and are able to afford the down payment. So you use accessible and we talk about affordable. Distinguish between accessible housing versus affordable housing. Well, to me, what happens is we have, we have basically, when we call something affordable, that's got a stigma against it. And so people think that's somehow low quality um, and, and, and they, they don't wanna deal with it. Um, so I use the term accessible because the challenge is, is that decent housing is not accessible to the average American working family. And in my mind, the challenge quite frankly is not about the cost of housing. It's about how we uh, dis distribute the income in this country. We have such a huge income inequality that it is simply unsustainable. Um, and as a result of that, um, it's, I think, a threat to our democracy because what's happened is increasingly folks are not able to, you know, working two, two, two working uh, people working 40 hours a week, unable to afford something. This is what leads people to basically uh, lose faith in the government, lose faith in, in, in politicians, lose faith in, uh, in, 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 in business, lose faith in our not-for-profits. Um, and we can see that in our own country. And quite frankly, I think that's a threat to democracy. Well, Mike, I've always, uh, as I said, you're one of the sincere people out there. You've not lost the uh, sociology education. You're putting <laughs> it in practice and you're putting your money where your mouth is and you're trying to change things out there. So, uh, you know, I commend you. I'm very happy to have you on the show. And it's also nice to see how you've transitioned into the private sector. Any, any last words of wisdom you'd like to share with the audience? Uh, just that Everyone is a potential small-scale developer. They can turn their own neighborhood into a farm, begin to sort of make a difference themselves. And then the other thing is just to thank you, Robert, because quite frankly, you've been one of my mentors who helped me begin to understand what it means to be an entrepreneur uh, as I've made that transition. Well, I, I think the roles are reversed. I've always looked up to you, but thank you so much for, uh, for being on Green Sense. We wish you the best of luck and uh, love to have you back on the show in a couple of months and hear a, a success story. Be my pleasure. That's Mike Keene, Principal at Thrive Michiana, a sustainability and innovation consulting and development company, talking about his plan to make housing accessible to everyone. I'm Robert Colangelo. This is Green Sense, reminding you to subscribe to our podcast at greensensefarms.com and check out the Green Sense Minute every Thursday and Saturday on News Radio 780 and 105.9 FM, WBBM, Chicago.